All right, so my problem with most Santa Claus movies is that they all pretty much center around one thing, belief, or the lack of belief. Believing is Santa's medicine. Belief is reindeer gasoline, or my favorite, belief can end Arctic drilling. Well, personally, I don't think anyone needs to believe in Santa. Not anymore. Believing, it puts Santa in this box that has all sorts of limitations, and it shifts the focus onto who Santa is. But Santa isn't a who. Santa is the spirit of the season. He's the personification of that electric winter feeling. And that makes him much, much bigger than the character that we need to believe in. And a person can fall out of fashion or fade away, but can a spirit, a personification of a feeling, can that ever really disappear or be squashed, shut down with a proclamation? Apparently not. Spirits are tricky that way. Today, on Creating Christmas, the adventures of the underground gift bringer. The closest we've come to losing Christmas, forever, when it was outlawed and banned, didn't happen all at once. What some people call the canceling of Christmas was really just the culmination of a long line of efforts by a new division of Christianity, the Protestants, to reign in the religion and turn back the clock to a time when Christians did actually oppose the idea of a Christmas. Unfortunately for Nicholas, the saints in general, and Saint Nick in specific, well, they were early targets for this transformation. It's a foolish and pointless custom to fill children's shoes with all sorts of sweets and nonsense. What else is this but sacrifice to an idol? By the 16th century, when Martin Luther accidentally kickstarted the Reformation, Saint Nicholas was one of the most recognized and revered saints in the world. And while his fame went well beyond his position as an annual gift bringer, in Northern and Western European countries that were the most swept up in the Reformation, his role as the magical present-toting Saint Nick, that was a big part of his identity. And see, with saints as a whole, Protestants didn't like that they stood between the average person and God. And they also didn't like that people prayed to saints instead of God, so saints had to go. Beyond just that, Protestants had a special kind of dislike for Saint Nick and his gift bringing. They thought by giving presents to people, he was encroaching on territory that should only belong to the Holy Trinity. They believed all good things should be attributed to God, not some guy who drops by in the middle of winter. This is a bad custom because it points children to the saint. Well, yet we know that not Saint Nicholas, but the Holy Christ child gives us all good things for body and soul. And he alone is whom we ought to call upon. During the Reformation, the actual legal status of having Saint Nicholas visit on his feast day, it differed from country to country, ranging from a complete ban on the practice to an even more aggressive ban that included outlawing cookies that resembled or even referenced Saint Nick, to just like a sort of passive urge to not do Saint Nick so much. But hey, this is what the church and state were touting. And while some people had a problem with the idea of a gift bringer, most people were still looking for ways to include this annual character in their winter celebrations. To them, this read as a specific attack on Saint Nicholas. So most people, they were open to continuing in the spirit of the tradition. What ended up happening is actually pretty cool. Saint Nicholas, the gift bringer, he was split in two. 
On one hand, the Protestant divisions that approved of a gift bringer, as long as it specifically wasn't a saint, they borrowed a page from their Christian missionary forefathers, and they reimagined the existing tradition by leaning really hard into their religious beliefs. At the same time, another set of people took a different road. They basically put St. Nicholas into a sort of witness protection program, where the annual gift bringer took on this disguise that fell somewhere between Nicholas in a Halloween costume and a full-on Krampus-esque appearance. To get from here to our Santa Claus, both of these new gift bringer traditions would add indispensable characteristics to the winter visitor, and ultimately, both would make it over to the melting pot of America, where they would be reunited. Okay, let's start by looking at this gift bringer that the Protestant churches wanted people to adopt. In the most starkly Protestant countries, the 16th and 17th century were the end of St. Nicholas. We're talking feast days canceled, statues melted down, cookies crumbled. No more saints. Then beginning in Germany, and thought to have actually been created by Martin Luther himself, Protestants took the gift bringer custom and reimagined it as Chris Kendall. Now, I like this name because to me, it still holds just a bit of that winter celebration magic that immediately disappears when translated to English, the language I understand, and becomes the Christ child. See, these literal Protestants took their inspiration for replacing St. Nicholas directly from the Bible, rebranding Nicholas as Jesus. But not just any Jesus, specifically the baby form of Jesus. Watch Okay, as some sort of thought exercise in gifts and salvation, a sort of Bible lesson, Jesus as the gift bringer makes sense. But all the way back since Odin, the holiday gift bringer had been more than just a theoretical concept. The gift bringer knocked on your door. So how did that work? If we think about the four types of experiences that children had with St. Nicholas the gift bringer, replacing Nick with a baby Jesus that bestowed gifts totally unseen, it didn't cause any unique problems to continuing that custom. Often the tradition was that Chris Kindle would leave presents in another room while children were eating dinner. And when a bell rang, the kids knew that Christ had visited. But this sort of secret or invisible gifting, it really only satisfied the simplest of the St. Nicholas gift bringer experiences. In the more involved real life in-person sort of gift bringer appearance, having a baby actually stop by and give presents was a bit more complicated. Protestants were undeterred. For in-person Chris Kindle experiences, such as at a Chris Kindle market, the role of baby Jesus was typically played by an adolescent girl, preferably blonde, wearing white. This appearance, it actually closely resembled another pre-existing saint custom, Saint Lucia. Also, this recasting, it wasn't meant to fool anyone. These girls in white were less of a stand-in for baby Jesus, and really more of just a symbol for the full-grown Jesus. Now, this may or may not be surprising, but in the same vein that a saint can't beat, murder, or steal children, the symbolic son of God, he also couldn't fulfill the punishment role that had come to be a pretty important part of these holiday gift bringer visits. So, like St. Nicholas, Chris Kindle was actually known to travel with an evil helper, kept on a chain that punished the bad children. Many of the exact same evil helpers that had appeared with St. Nicholas also now appeared with Chris Kindle, Krampus, Sirt, Hans Trapp, while annual visits by the baby Jesus might be foreign to many of us, especially those in North America, this rebranding was actually super successful and it is still practiced widely today. And with his popularity, Chris Kindle caused two very important changes in the European holiday season. 
that honestly might not have ever happened without the ousting of St. Nicholas. First, suddenly freed from only visiting around St. Nicholas's feast day on December 6th, the winter gift bringer could transition to later in the month, specifically the birthday of Jesus, which by the Reformation was firmly established as December 25th, making the gift bringer for the first time a true part of Christmas. And while Protestant groups like the Puritans were 100% against Christmas, Catholics weren't. Hi, my name's Tom German. I am the author of Santa Claus Worldwide. The Chris Kindle became more popular among the Catholic citizens of the German areas than it did among the, the Protestant. Parents saw this figure and they said, we like the idea of the Christ child bringing gifts better than we like St. Nicholas. So they just told St. Nicholas to quit coming and they implemented the Christ child as the Christmas gift giver. As the gift bringer became something more central in symbolism and more directly aligned with Christianity, the idea of a seasonal gift bringer finally spread throughout Europe, thanks in large part to the adoption of this custom by Catholics. This made the arrival of the holiday gift bringer a much more widely practiced tradition than visits from St. Nicholas or Odin had ever been. But not everyone was so quick to switch from this old stern bishop to a baby. In a lot of places throughout Northern Europe, people started creating like workaround characters to take the place of their ousted saint. And these would take a lot of different shapes over the next couple hundred years. The rest of the Protestant regions or religions, whatever you want to call them, created a group of people that I call the Terror Man or the Faux Nicholases. The rise of this wide variety of Terror Man characters is actually like the yin to Santa's yang. These characters developed regionally and differed from community to community in part because this was before the invention of mass media, before there was a way to unify cultural ideology and experience. Basically, back then, there was no centralizing force that let everyone know, hey, this is a Belsnickel. So everyone got to create their own name, look, and practice, their own traditions. And because of that, these characters had a wide variety of names and attributes. Two prevalent versions were Belschnickel and Pelschnickel, which are actually just two different ways of saying the same thing. Belschnickel is really just an Americanization of Pelschnickel, who is Nicholas with pelts. Uh, Ashenklaus is Nicholas in ashes. All of these names have an element of Nicholas in them, but they're really the figure that you would get if you were trying to replicate Nicholas, but rather just create your own gift gift. Now, of all these faux Nicholases, we're gonna focus on Belsnickel, because as a character, he was a fairly well-known version of faux Nicholases and exemplified many of the key attributes that these Terramen shared, but also because Belsnickel specifically was important to the development of Santa. Okay, so while at first these faux Nicholases, Belsnickels, were more like costume versions of the saint, just like parents warn you that your face can get stuck that way, the saint, he got stuck that way. So let's build a Snickle. They looked nothing like St. Nicholas. They were depicted as if St. Nicholas had been sent off into the woods for three or four years and came back with long, straggly, dirty hair and a long beard and uh, wearing animal pelts and coats. They're really very dirty, the opposite of the way St. Nicholas was depicted, which was this very uprighteous saint. 
What's most interesting about the rise of Belsnickel and Pelsnickel and all the other similar faux Nicholas characters is that they broke the bond between religion and the gift bringer. Maybe less so at first, but over time, the Belsnickel type of character became more and more of a dirty, grumbly wild man. And as he did, he became more and more secular. Now, unlike creating a visit from the baby Jesus, having a Belsnickel drop by was almost too easy to create. In fact, for gift bringer purists, it was. It was too easy. All someone had to do was darken their face, rough up their clothes, and poof. You know, they're like 80% of the way there. If they happen to have a beard, they're at 90% Snickle. Which led to completely different roles for Bell Snickle as the character evolved. But the appearance wasn't the only thing that changed as culture drifted away from their stern saint. With the rougher look came a rougher visiting experience. I mean, there's a reason Tom calls these characters terror men. See, unlike St. Nicholas and Chris Kendall, Belsnickel took on both aspects of the traditional house visits. He was the gift bringer and the punisher. The actual customs of faux Nicholases, they varied, but in general, when Belsnickel came to judge the good and the bad, it started with a rapping on your window or door. He sauntered in, dirty, disheveled, gruff, carrying a bundle of switches or a whip. Now, like St. Nicholas, Belsnickel would question the children or recite songs which they would then have to complete. But these could be completely lacking in any biblical connection. There were punishments for wrong answers. For correct answers or good kids, Belsnick would throw candy or nuts on the ground. But even these rewards weren't free of problems. If kids went for the candy too fast, they could also get popped with Belsnickel's switch. As I mentioned, it was super easy to dress up like Belsnickel, which meant that as the tradition evolved, so did the people playing the part of the annual gruff gift bringer. While it seems at first the tradition was more like a rough St. Nicholas, it eventually shifted to people on like the fringes of society or like pranksters and teens taking over the role of these annual visits. Which honestly fits more in with the pre-19th century Christmas celebration that was way more of a party and way less about family. I think that one explanation for how these characters acquired their look is simply what would teenage boys or, or younger men dress up like if they were going out to uh, have fun on St. Nicholas Eve? And, and there are pictures, more modern pictures, where you, you see them dressed up to look like the terror men. Uh, and they would go from house to house and try and scare the little kids. But they would also take treats to them. And so I, I think those figures developed because the people who wanted to continue the tradition were older boys or younger men, depending on how you want to view it. And this is how they dressed up. Now, as much as I might want to see this Christmas character split as a stark divide, it just wasn't. A lot of it, I think, it was just the way particular families or it could be particular towns or regions chose to celebrate. But so there were no strict rules. It just happened and they just dealt with different forms. The practices and traditions carried on during the holiday season really varied family to family, and not just between Chris Kindle or a faux Nicholas, but exactly what type of experience each of these characters would bring. At the same time, I want to point out that there was a lot more going on in Europe around the holiday season, and that this massive set of holiday characters weren't just limited to the two archetypes of the baby Jesus or the terror man. These were the two that were part of the pathway to Santa, so that's why we're focusing on them. 
there were actually many other holiday characters spreading throughout Europe, including two of my favorites, which are Italy's Christmas witch, La Bufana, and, you know, you gotta love Spain's gift-pooping log. There were even characters that fell into this grouping of terrormen, such as Nectruprit, who were able to maintain their own identity and their own personality, and then come out on the other side of this great Santa stew to continue their own traditions in the later family-centric holiday. Now there is one country that got totally swept up in the Reformation, but was able to hold on to St. Nicholas just by popular demand. And that was Holland. They got rid of him in Holland, but only in name. They said, okay, we won't have St. Nicholas anymore, but we'll have this guy named Sinterklaas who, who looks much the same. Now looking just at the fathers of Santa, we have the Belsnickel-style character, Chris Kindle, and Sinterklaas, all making their way to colonial America. Y'all, this is how the sausage gets made. And by that, I mean the birth of Santa, it's messy. Santa's story is different than his forefathers. Unlike the history of Odin or St. Nicholas, his conception isn't really its own story. Instead, Santa's origin is more something that was cobbled together with stitches, mistakes, and newsprint. The first gift bringer to arrive in colonial America was Sinterklaas from the Dutch, the actual Dutch, the Dutch Dutch, who settled New Amsterdam in 1625. St. Nicholas was the patron saint of Amsterdam, and so it's very likely that he held an important place in New Amsterdam as well. The Dutch prominence in the New World was short-lived, though, only about 40 years before losing the land to the English, who quickly renamed New Amsterdam New York. From there, the Dutch presence in America, it sort of fell off a cliff, diving to only 2% of the entire colonial population by the 1800s. So the impact of Sinterklaas on the evolving colonial customs was pretty limited. So while St. Nicholas may have landed first in the New World, it was the other gift bringers that settled a bit later that were actually able to get a toehold in America. And to find this, we look a bit south to Pennsylvania, which I just, I didn't expect Santa to owe so much of a debt to Pennsylvania. Belsnickel and the Christ Child first migrated to colonial America in the 1700s brought by German immigrants who were commonly called the Pennsylvania Dutch. Now, this was a time when the idea of celebrating Christmas was again getting popular, but definitely not in the family-centric way we celebrate today. The Christmas that was re-emerging was the raucous party animal style of holiday that had predated the Protestants. Now, right about this point, for the first time really in our entire history of the gift bringer, we're able to start to leave behind or at least rely less on oral legends or oral customs, things passed down we can find people, in their own words, in print, tracing the evolution of the gift bringer. I mean, they didn't know that's what they were doing at the time, but looking back, we can see these characters as they weave their way into society and change. And we can see this in newspaper stories, diaries, and what we call nowadays, like, letters to the editor. The Belsico custom, it began to mix with these other customs that had been brought to America, because this time period, especially as it got closer to the 1800s, was where America earned the name the melting pot. See, customs like Belsnickel that had developed in their European home country for hundreds of years, everyone back home knew what they were and how they were practiced. Well, they arrived to this new world where the people who practiced these customs, well, they settled into communities that might not have ever heard of something like Belsnickel and had brought over their own unique customs like Christmas mumming from England. Hey, 
In these situations, many traditions were kind of given this option of adapt or fade away. Belsnickel adapted. So as we get into this cultural grinder that was the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution, Belsnickel meant one of many things. There were still annual house-to-house visits from Belsnickel. Now they are often paired with some sort of payment in exchange for the visit, usually food or drink. There entered a man in disguise who very much alarmed my little Dan. The stranger threw down nuts and cakes, and when someone offered to pick them up, stuck at him with a rod. This was a real Belsnickel. I presume that he thought to throw down his store of nice things for the good children and strike the bad ones with his whip. But this character's fame spread faster under the practice of Belsnickling, which was actually the merging of the Germanic Belsnickel with English wassailing. Wassailing was a sort of elevated Christmas door-to-door street performance. Think aggressive caroling. Oh, bring us a figure pudding. Oh, bring us a figure pudding. Oh, Pottstown was full of bellsnickels on Christmas Eve. Young chaps with their faces blacked with masks and dressed in all kinds of outlandish styles. These fellas visited the hotels, the stores, the shops and in many instances private dwellings and annoyed people with their horrible attempts at singing, making themselves odious throughout the town in general. This Belsnickel business is becoming more of a rough and rowdy observance of the Christmas season each year. At first, the more traditional Belsnickel visits, they were the predominant experience in rural areas, while Belsnickling activities were kept more to urban towns and cities. But eventually, these traditions overlapped, with Belsnickling invading rural Pennsylvania as well as the cities. The life of Chris Kindle, though, didn't flourish quite so well as Belschnickel. Within one or two generations, the German Chris Kindle had been broken down through language translation to just Chris Kringle. With the loss of the name, so too came the loss of a strong religious connection. The Germans taught their children that the Christ child, Chris Kindle, brought the Christmas gifts, and the English-speaking people corrupted the same into the horrible Chris Kringle. What a horrible perversion of the beautiful name Christchild. Losing the religious connotation, you know, changing the name, cutting out the Christchild. It was a big deal to people who knew about the original custom, but to everyone else, it just didn't matter because the gift bringer, Chris Kringle, was able to freely merge with a more generic guy who brings presents around Christmas character that was taking hold on a much wider scale. It's sort of like the exact opposite of what happened with the Catholics adopting and spreading Chris Kindle. The lack of any religious ties, it probably saved and helped cement Chris Kringle into the evolving holiday mindset. Some persons, who are very stupid, say we ought to say Christ Kinkle. And some, who are very wise, say we ought to say Christ Kindle. But we are used to plain, merry old Chris Kringle and shan't give him up. What's interesting is even through the Kris Kringle transformation, this character seems to have remained a gift bringer for good kids, while never really fully taking on the punishment aspects. There are stories of Kris Kringle visiting with Belschnickel, this happened usually when the kids were asleep, so that the more devil-like character would carry out the punishments.
Now, both Belschnickel and Kris Kringle would continue their distinct annual visits well into the 19th century. But the line dividing them and what their distinct characteristics were would become increasingly confused as they spread into new communities and intermingled with new customs, which is really just a fancy way to say, as the culture of Santa started taking over, who Belschnickel and Kris Kringle were and what they did sort of disappeared. But as we look at this early development period of Santa Claus, we can't ignore the presence of Kris Kringle and Belsnickel. While not adopted throughout the new country of the United States, the idea of a Christmas gift bringer was also not completely foreign. There was an established series of traditions where characters would visit children and give gifts. So Santa Claus and the whole idea of a magical person visiting on Christmas was not an entirely new idea. What I mean is that these Pennsylvania Dutch customs had really already done the hard work of creating the cultural roadways, and these enabled the next gift bringer to easily slip into Christmas traditions, as even more cultures collided entering the 1800s. Which is right when the American Dutch, the Dutch Dutch population, was only about 2%. But it was also about the time that we find a dramatic increase in interest regarding the early Dutch history of New York. Christmas is For a long time, historians believed that St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, had completely disappeared from colonial America, along with the Dutch in the 17th century. That wasn't completely correct. It's more like he was smoldering, staying alive, but way in the background. And here, St. Nick is ready to make a comeback, just as America was embracing mass media. That's how the juggernaut of Santa Claus arrived, in print. And that's next time on Creating Christmas. Christmas is coming. Creating Christmas was produced today by me, Bobby Christian. This is a Civil Matador podcast. Special thanks today to Tom German and his book, Santa Claus Worldwide. Check out creatingchristmaspodcast.com for even more holiday cheer. And if you want to spread some cheer of your own, we love reviews and ratings on the podcast platform of your choice. Okay, until next time, stay jolly. Ho, ho, ho.